Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here with Jason Gauchi. Jason is a software engineering manager at Facebook. Jason, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Sam. Hey, I'm super excited to jump into this conversation. Let us start the way we always do with having you share a little bit of your background. What got you started down the path of working in AI? Sure. Yeah, it's a great question. So, so I, um, you know, for me, computers were were sort of just this amazing, you know, mysterious thing. You know, I grew up, uh, um, you know, going to uh, a lot of like thrift stores and garage sales and all of that with my folks. I'm kind of a first generation college student, and so so we found a computer in a, an old uh, Atari 400-800, um, you know, at a garage sale. And I remember um, it, had a, it had just one you know, kind of game on it. And the game was called Basic. And I thought, oh, yes. okay, let's let's plug this in and see what happens. <laughs> and it was just a screen with weird with weird letters and and uh, just a blinking cursor. And I was like, wow, this uh it's kind of different than uh than Pong, you know, or whatever my cousin had. I think he had a Nintendo or whatever it was. Did you get um, the the special basic keyboard with those clicky buttons? Oh, so well, this Atari had the keyboard kind of built in. It was a 400-800, so the keyboard was all kind of in the unit, you know? Oh, interesting. Uh, so it's like these really hard buttons. You, you'd press it, and I think over time, some of the buttons stopped working, so that really changed what my variable names were called and everything, right? Um, I think I'm but, thinking uh, of yeah. what I had, which was basic for the 2600, which had oh. like a separate accessory keyboard with... Uh, I'm trying to remember where you see those keyboards nowadays like it's the same kind of thing that you find on like a cheap remote it's like clicky plastic oh is it the one with the nine the the like uh because i know the 2600 had that nine uh almost like a telephone pad it's something like well if i'm thinking of the right thing it was like in two pieces and they slid together and there was like yeah that's right numeric thing and like the mathematical symbols and like the other programming symbols i hadn't thought about this in a long time <laughs> yeah that's awesome yeah yeah so you know is this this kind of thing i mean i mean you really never knew what you were going to expect and it, it felt it felt totally magical and and that's really what got me into it i, I remember i made a an arm wrestling game where basically you'd have to hit the space bar a bunch of times. And if you hit it fast enough, you won at arm wrestling. And it just kind of went from there. I've just always had a huge passion for it. And one of the things I've always been interested in is kind of like the the whole Turing test idea and even going beyond that sort of superhuman AI and what that really means. And so if you think about, you know, let's say computer vision, you know, if you have human level AI, that is already pretty awesome, right? Maybe you could have superhuman, you could have sort of really eagle eye vision, you know, but it's kind of like, uh, that's maybe less, you know, getting the human level is already 90% of the way there. It's already, you know, most of the value. Um, but when I saw things, when I read about things like Deep Blue and these these things that could just, you know, do amazing kind of, you know, decision-making and strategic thinking, that was really just ignited something. And so after I finished my studies, I decided to go get a PhD focused on game playing and these sort of like economic simulations and and things like that. And so after I got my PhD in that, I went to, uh, I was working with some contractors for a while. And then I went to Google research where I continued to work on uh, decision making and doing like strategic planning and all of that with the help of machines. And then I have kind of worked my way into uh, Facebook, which is where I'm at now, working on uh, uh, you know starting up this reagent team where we're trying to produce like a decision making system for ultimately for the whole world. Like the think of the Hadoop for decision making that people can just grab and go. Nice, nice. Let's let's talk about decision making a little bit more. When I think about some of the things you mentioned, strategic game playing and economic simulations and things like that, I think about ideas like game theory and related concepts, does that kind of come into your world or is that a big part of the way you think about decision-making and the the context that you've been working in? 
Yeah, totally. So I think, you know, games are a really good platform for testing these ideas and trying to push the limits and all of that, because, you know, games are, someone has kind of taken, think about something like chess, right? So chess is, it's very sort of complex. There's a lot of depth there. And, and um, you know, I'm currently trying to teach my older son chess. And so we're having a lot of fun with that. But one thing that's often taken for granted is, you know, chess was made to kind of teach people about battles, right? And it was made to kind of teach generals about battle strategy. And so what that means is somebody, you know, over, or over time, many people have had to take what makes arranging a battle difficult and collapse that down and think what things matter, what things don't really matter. What's the really hard part there? What's the core essence of that problem? And I believe, I'm not an expert on Go history, but I believe Go is very similar. It was also meant to explain sort of territory and battles. And so so somebody was able to reduce it down to that sort of core essence. And that's what makes it really nice for decision-making researchers is because you know, you've, you've stripped it down to the part that we really care about. And so my PhD was in trying to, uh, similar to how a child learns to play Go, um, the system that I built learned to play Go on a smaller board. I mean, this was, um, my PhD started in 2004. So this was, this predates DeepMind and, and a lot of that. I mean, those people have, uh, they, they referenced our work, but uh, they also really took it to the next level and, and hats off to David Silver and everybody over there. So the research was on, let's start with a small Go board. So for people who aren't familiar, Go is this game where you play stones trying to encircle you know, your opponent's stones and, and gain territory. And because of the way the game works, you can play on really any board size. And typically what people will do in, in, uh, when they start learning, you know, maybe as children or even as adults, they'll start on a smaller board where the game can go quicker and there's less sort of really deep strategy. And once they've gotten good at that, they can move on. So they can start at a 9 by 9 board and then they can go to, uh, I guess, 12 by 12, 17 by 17, and then eventually to the full 19 by 19 board. And my uh, you know, system that I built did similar things. It started on a small board and it was able to sort of translate a lot of that strategy to the bigger board. And so you know, we'll visit a lot of this later, but I think you know, academia is continuing to sort of really push the limits in terms of really complicated new games. Um, you know, we're looking at, I think there's recently uh, the Rebel platform that was built by Noam Brown on, on doing Texas Hold'em. And there's things like that. But getting back to that, that initial thing, that, that problem of how do we take this real world situation, in this case of chess, you know, a battle, and how do we reduce it down to something like that game, right? That is something that, you know, our team really tries to spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, in addition to that, then we can try to solve and really help, uh, you know, provide value to whoever wants to use Reagent. And so is the idea there that you simplify the real world down into a game, then you implement the game and that gives you answers that you can then apply to the real world? Or is it more a thought exercise for, uh, as you mentioned, understanding what's really important in the various scenarios you're modeling? Yeah, I mean, it's a really great point. I would say that we're starting to make things more automated which uh, would require us to be sort of less hands-on for every given problem, right? In general, there's sort of two main approaches. There's model-based and model-free, right? And so in the case of model-based, exactly as you mentioned, we're going to create some kind of model. And that model, you know, is going to predict things like, if I were to take this action in this context, what do I expect is going to happen? Now, in something like chess, that's very easy. You have the rules of the game. So if I move my pawn forward, I expect the board to be looking like this, right? And you can just write that by hand and it would be totally accurate. In the real world or, or in you know, analog systems or, or what have you, there's, there's not so much certainty. So if you take an action, often there's a distribution, right? Or a whole range of different things that, that can happen from that action. And so what we'll do in model-based reinforcement learning is we will look at, uh, either way, you know, whatever we're doing, we will look at a huge volume of actions that were taken in, in an environment. So, so one of the things we do is we optimize 
various processes in the data center. And so the state, you know, the board, if you will, is going to be, um, you know, the current state of the data center, right, or the current relevant state. And actions might be, you know, doing different things to change that environment, you know, turning down network switches and what have you. And then what we can do is, you know, the state might contain things like how overall healthy the data center is. So it's not totally obvious what's going to happen when we take an action, right? Not like there is with chess, but looking at a lot of data, we can we can infer that. So model-based is actually a lot of supervised machine learning that people are already familiar with. So, you know, we, we were in this context, we took this action, now we're in this new context. And you could imagine treating that as just a standard deep learning problem, right? Then what you do is when you have this sort of simulator that you've built, you know, autonomously without having to go in and write any of these rules, then you can learn. Then it's almost like getting back to our Go example. You can sort of make actions in that simulator and learn things and learn good strategies. A second approach is model-free reinforcement learning. And this is where you don't have a simulator. You don't even try to build a simulator, but you just have so much data that you hope your data captures a lot of different possibilities. And from your data set, you could try to guess at you know, what would have happened. So we call those counterfactuals, right? If I had taken this action instead of that one, what would have happened? And so from those guesses, you can build a better policy, a better decision-making system, and then roll that one out and let it generate data. So there's model-free and model-based. There's definitely sort of trade-offs but we use uh, we we use both of them in, in different contexts. Mm-hmm. So we started talking about the conceptual decisions conceptually and kind of backed into reinforcement learning. Maybe going back to the decisions themselves, just to get a sense of the, um, just to kind of ground us in some concrete examples. You mentioned optimizing the the data center. I've got questions about that one already. Um, sure. But I'd love to maybe start with kind of a, a bit more of a broad brush. You know, what are some of the, the types of specific decisions that you're helping folks automate there? Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, we can cover a, a wide uh, variety of decisions. So, so one is, if you think about, let's say, ranking and recommendations, for example. So this applies to e-commerce. You know, it applies to social sites like, you know, LinkedIn and Facebook, any site that has sort of a feed, right? In these environments, you have to sort things. And so what that means is you have to have sort of a a single order, or you can imagine a single value for every item. Now, the reality is, is your business, you know, almost any business is going to be very complex and very multi-objective, right? So again, just continue with the e-commerce example. There might be some products that people are really excited about and they'll click on and, and they'll be really interested. And maybe that will cause them to come back to Amazon many times and do a bunch of research. Um, there might be another product where someone will just buy it right away. And so that's an instant sort of revenue, right? And so, you know, if you were Amazon, you'd want to trade off these different objectives, right? Um, so in the case of Facebook, you know, we have a variety of different objectives. You know, we want people to build stronger connections with their friends and family. You know, we want people to see content that they enjoy, Right. And so there's, there's a variety of different objectives there, and it's not totally obvious how to sort of trade them off, right? And so what we can do is show people different strategies that make different trade-offs and sort of the effect of that. And then, you know, this is where we can kind of work in concert. You know, engineers and these systems can work in concert to really learn sort of what we call the Pareto front or the sort of decision front, the, the sort of surface of good trade-offs. And then we can kind of work together interactively to figure out, you know, to answer sort of the philosophical or the economic question in the case of Amazon. Um, so we do a lot with ranking recommendations. You could think of things like marketing as being decision-making problems, right? Who should you market to and when and what is the right time Definitely, there's a lot of decision-making in infrastructure. And so that includes, you know, how do we optimize the, the infrastructure for latency and, and even how do we f- optimize the environment of the data center? But then if you were to take a step, even another step backwards, you know, anyone who writes any piece of software 
has an audience in mind. And anytime you write software, even whether it's using machine learning or not, you're going to have to make some guesses about what that person's going to want to see or experience or do with your software. And so anytime you can kind of close that loop and make it interactive, you'll catch sort of your blind spots. So for example, you might say, after three seconds where we don't have internet, let's pop up a notification saying, hey, you lost internet. Just let's say this is a a game or, or an app or something like that. But it turns out there might be a lot of people who play your game on a subway where they they lose internet for three or four seconds all the time and they get really annoyed by that, right? So a, a decision-making system that's inserted there could could actually learn that time and it could also adapt. If a bunch of subway users started using your app, you know, it, it could a- adapt automatically. So so I think ultimately the audience for us is is really anyone who writes software it's just that we're you know, kind of starting in our wheelhouse, which is things that are already really heavy in machine learning, recommender systems, and data center optimization is an area we're already super familiar with. Mm-hmm. Is there a difference between the, again, kind of at this conceptual level, like, you know, we think of machine learning, you know, all the time as helping with decision making. Is there a difference between the way you might frame a decision to kind of attack it with your approach? Or is it just that in your case, you're tending to apply reinforcement learning in other cases, you might be applying some other tool? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, you know, think about, let's say you had an app that was there to recognize something in an image. So let's say you have a a dog app and it just uh, tells you, you know, yes, we found a dog, or you'd hold your phone up. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's a perfect one. Hot dog, not hot dog. (laughs) Exactly from Silicon Valley. So that model, that computer vision model is going to output a score, right? It's going to, you're going to give it an image and it's going to come back and say 0.4, right? But then you as the engineer need to do something with that number. So for example, if it's the hot dog app, maybe if it's 0.5 or higher, you say it's a hot dog. But if it's, let's say a, a cancer screening app, then maybe you know it needs to be 0.9, right? Or maybe it needs to be 0.1. I mean, it really just depends on the economics, right? So if it's a cancer screening app and the decision is going to be to run another test, and let's say that test just costs a nominal amount of money, then maybe you would want to run it even with a score of 0.1, even if there's a 10% chance of there being cancer, right? But if, if on the flip side, if you're going to do a biopsy, maybe it needs to be much higher, right? And so there's always this sort of decision-making part. It's just that often we do a lot of supervised learning and then the decision-making we do by hand. So someone just goes in and says greater than 0.5, right? And so often when we work with teams, even teams who have you know machine learning PhDs and people with a lot of experience, one of the big challenges in the beginning is getting folks to understand that that part where they just took this really complicated model and just said greater than 0.5, that's actually the decision. Like, so that's the thing we want to optimize. And so we'll typically build our models on top of really sophisticated supervised machine learning models. And so we're not going to worry about reinventing the wheel uh, or really doing end-to-end. It's more, let's let the computer vision model do what it's really good at and let's focus on that decision space. And so for a lot of these systems, there really is no machine learning when we get started. And so what we really have to do is try different. So if we use our hot dog, not hot dog app, we have to try different thresholds and see how people respond to that. You know, if we set a threshold of 0.1 and we get a lot of complaints for false positives, then we know that maybe that was a bad threshold. And so that's a big part of the process. Is there a simple example that comes to mind of, you know, where you've gone in and a, a team had a very simple threshold and you you did some work to kind of elaborate the nuances there and, and you know what the resulting outcome was yeah definitely so um so one of the the metrics that we're really interested at you know internally at facebook is long term value you know we want to provide people with sort of those strong connections and and want to strengthen those connections over time i look at it as like facebook for me at least is just a way where I can send like little tiny packets of love to like people in my family who are really far away. So if my cousin has just had a child, I can 
comment and say congratulations. And it's just like sends a little sort of micro transaction of love across the pond to Italy where my family is. And so the question is, how do we do something like that, especially you know, something that has this sort of long-term value? How do we um, sort of capture that, right? So there was a system that was kind of deciding when to be more active in telling people about some event. So for example, if my cousin has a baby, that might be a really good time to just send me you know, a notification or even an email and say, hey, here's this really important post in your family, right? If it's just someone sharing a link to a newspaper article, maybe not so much, right? The current system was just written by hand. And so it's very hard when you write something by hand that's supposed to encompass so many different contexts to not just paint with too broad a brush, right? So we replaced that with a model that was just more intelligent about when to make that decision and just was able to have a lot more information. And we were able to reduce the number of these notifications we sent out by a lot. I mean, it's in the white paper, but it was double digit percentage reduction in the amount of notifications we were able to send out and still capture all of the value that, that we wanted to capture. And so that that was one where we were able to add a lot more focus to the app and make it more useful. Mm-hmm. And value in this case is some set of downstream metrics on like engagement and other things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you know, the the you know social scientists and data scientists are constantly trying to tweak this and find out you know what is the way that we can help as many people as possible. And so it's changed over the years. And one of the nice things about having something like this that's mechanized is that you can, if you find a new way to sort of objectively capture, you know, how do you measure these relationships getting stronger, then the system can adapt to that without needing to do a lot of work. But yeah, you're exactly right. It's some composition of different things that measure, um, you know, sort of those connections and that value that we're providing. Mm -hmm. And in this example, what was the overly simplified threshold point in the in the example? Yeah, so originally the system just looked at I think it was the chance that you would tap on the notification, right? And um you know, there's a variety of of pitfalls there. I mean, one of them is we might notify people of things they would have seen anyways. And that was kind of like an obvious corner case, right? But you know, without a sort of sequential decision making, that was kind of the best you could do is you know, what's this sort of immediate goal that I can set for my model, right? And so I think it was just a threshold against a constant, which, you know, they could tune that constant, but just if the chance of tapping is higher than X. And mm-hmm. so we were able to replace that with this whole system. Got it, got it. And and so in there, you mentioned sequential decision-making. Uh, elaborate on the sequential aspect in this example. Yeah, so, so let me talk about sequential decision-making uh, broadly, and I'll dive into the example if you think about something like poker, if you play a hand of poker, there might be you know maybe some decisions you make in that hand, but then at some point somebody wins and everyone's cards are wiped off the table and it starts all over again, right? And so you know if you don't think about the pots, right, like the the total banks of all the people involved, if you just think about the individual hands, it's not really a sequential problem, right? So I you know have this pocket of decisions that I'm making for this poker hand. And then the game ends, we all start from scratch, we get new cards. And so this is, you know, if you treat each hand as like a little combination of decisions, each of these combinations are are sort of isolated, right? Once you were to introduce, let's say, your overall bank, which, you know, changes permanently based on whether you win or lose the hand, now it becomes a sequential problem. So now it might make sense to maybe be more risk adverse in the beginning because you're thinking really long term at the end of this, uh, you, you know, you want to wait until maybe there's fewer people at the table or something. And so we call the first one a, a bandit. So a bandit problem is one where, you know, you still have a set of actions to choose from, but they're not going to affect the future. You, you're just going to take an action, you're going to get some kind of reward, and then you're going to move on to the next state. It's really like a reinforcement link problem when you know the actions you take put you in different states. And that makes the problem a lot more complicated because you have to reason about states that might not exist in your data. So if you had taken this other action, you would have been in this new universe that you don't will never see because this is not in your data set. 
Now, in the case of, let's say, just marketing in general, your marketing is very clearly sort of a sequential problem. You could fill, let's take you know, Google.com, you could fill the entire Google.com search results with ads. And for the next you know, two hours, Google would make a ton of money, like above the baseline, right? But you, you know, who knows what even would happen after that, right? So very clearly, like anything in marketing or advertising, you know, needs to consider long-term value where there's a potentially really long sequence of events that's happening. Nice. So we've talked about kind of decision-making and we've talked about reinforcement learning. The kind of broader context of this is that, so your team is the, the reagent team is reagent, a team that uses these tools, or is it a platform that you're building and a, set, a specific set of tools? Uh, contextualize that for us. Sure, sure. So Reagent is a, is a portmanteau of, uh, of reasoning agents. And so the idea is it's ultimately we want it to be sort of the Hadoop of decision making and of off, specifically offline reinforcement learning and offline bandits. Is your, why Hadoop is your model for what you want to be? Oh, <laughs> so yeah, a bit of backstory. I actually worked on the second version of Google MapReduce when I was at okay. Google. And, um, you know, I always kind of bothered me that we didn't open source it. Um, you know, I was really proud of it. I feel like uh, there was a huge audience for it. And Hadoop, um, I don't know, this is very dated information. I mean, I worked on this in 2011. But, you know, at the time, Hadoop was using these name nodes um, whereas with Google's MapReduce, we had a distributed hash table that was distributed over the worker nodes. And um, not to sort of like geek out too much about this, but I was really proud of Google MapReduce. I wish that we'd open sourced it. And I've always been also really proud of Hadoop and what the Yahoo team was able to do there. And so I look at Hadoop as sort of a model platform where it really changed the industry. And um, even you know things like Spark that came later, you know, they had backwards compatibility with Hadoop. And it kind of like started, at least from the big data standpoint, it kind of started that whole revolution. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah. And so a lot of reinforcement learning is focused on simulation. That was what my uh, PhD was on. It's, it's as, as an academic, that is a really attractive environment, right? But once you go to the real world, you have to think about things like safety. You know, how can I be you know, statistically guaranteed that this model is at least as good as the one that is currently in production, right? You want to have sort of policies that are kind of fixed. So they could have some randomness in them, but you don't want to be learning in real time when you're serving, you know, 100 billion queries a day, right? So the real world imposes a lot of restrictions that you know, as an academic in the field, I never really thought about, and I don't think a lot of others did either. And so this is, I think, going to provide a service for all these people making decisions who either they don't see how to do that with, you know, the current reinforcement learning and contextual bandit libraries out there, or they can't get those those guarantees out of those libraries. So to dive in a little bit on, on the technical side, something like, um, like AlphaGo, which is a, a system from DeepMind that learns to play Go, it, it learns online and on policy. So what that means is it makes a decision, it finds out, oh, uh, that decision cost me the whole game, and it adapts a policy really quickly. And then the next decision is made with the new policy. And so what that means is you could be in bad states. So you could, at least you know, in the beginning while you're training, you could have some policies that are really, really terrible and it's fine because they're gone in a split of a second. They're replaced with another one, right? If your plan is to train for an hour and then and then freeze the policy and send it to a billion people, then you can't take that risk where even 1% of the time the policy is, is kind of broken, right? So that really changes the kind of algorithms you can use and the sort of methods you have to, to develop. And so... For people who are interested in in this on the academic side, Sergey Levin gave a talk uh, about a week ago at the NeurIPS conference on offline RL. And uh, it's a culmination of of a lot of work. Um, Scott Fujimoto, um, a lot of his papers were in that talk, and he was uh, an intern on, on the reagent team last summer. He gives a really good explanation on the academic side. But from our perspective, we want a library where people can give it you know, a bucket full of data and then get 
a sort of decision-making system on the other end that they can use, you know, without having to do a lot of really complicated simulation or anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so in your case, you're not operating online, you're primarily operating offline? Yep, that's right. So we, um, yeah, as I said, we serve 100 billion decisions every day, Uh, actually probably a lot more than that by now. And we do that by you know, training a model offline, similar to, you know, people who are used to, you know, collaborative filtering and, and the sort of traditional recommender systems, they're kind of used to this where they'll train, you know, a very, very large collaborative filtering model, and then they'll swap it out with the production one, and they'll do that at a certain cadence. And so we wanted to keep that developer workflow and developer experience that's worked really well, but be able to do it for decision making. hmm and in terms of on-policy versus off-policy spectrum, where does your model fall in that? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I'll explain on and off-policy. So you know, on-policy means that your model makes a decision and then you get feedback on that decision and now you can make another one, right? In the case of off-policy, you're watching someone else make a decision and you're trying to learn from that, right? So imagine if, AlphaGo or Deep Blue or one of these systems could only watch other people play. You know, so there's this interesting question: like, could you make Deep Blue if it just watched amateurs play? And the answer is, you know, theoretically you could. In practice, it would be very, very hard, right? You'd have to find those slivers of time when an amateur does something really profound, and you'd have to learn a lot from that, right? Mm-hmm. Now, our system is on policy technically because our system makes decisions. Those decisions and the effects or our feedback is logged, and then we can train on that, right? But because we're offline, because there's so much time, you know, so many decisions in between when we update the policy, right? It's almost like being off policy because we can't adapt in real time. So it's almost like we're watching someone else make decisions because so the environment has changed so much, right? And so all of this becomes kind of fuzzy. So to to ameliorate that, we assume that we're off policy offline, which is kind of like this the broadest assumptions you can make. And so in that way, we can be as sort of safe as possible when we're rolling out the model. Yeah, when I think about the example you gave in terms of off policy and could you learn to be a master by watching amateurs, and it makes me wonder the degree to which, you know, if we introduce another, you know, piece of terminology that we mentioned, model-based, does that change the dynamic in that you can watch this portfolio of amateurs and because you're building a model based on what they're doing, build a more robust model than any of the individual amateurs have? And do you still need to, um, are you still similarly dependent on kind of the genius amateur move? Yeah, I mean, this is a good question. You know, we're hiring. If uh, if you're interested, <laughs> you, you hit the nail on the head. Exactly, that's exactly right. I think if you're building a model, then your model can kind of interpolate from the amateurs, and it could find you know it could know about the expert move without seeing it because it can interpolate from many different amateur moves, right? And so, in general, the model based you know. Uh, People uh, in in deep learning or machine learning in general are very familiar with the bias-variance trade-off, right? So if I train an extremely large neural network, it might memorize all the answers. And so when I score it on my training set, it might even get a perfect score, right? But then when I score it on the validation set, the holdout set, it'll be way off. And so that model is biased, right? Um, If the model is underfitting, if it's too small, then... It will do equally bad on training and holdout, but that loss, that badness is, is variance, it measures variance. And so when you introduce a model, you're going to trust that model. And so that's going to induce a bias. So, you know, that's going to, you know, it's going to find some really superstar moves and let you take those moves. But it's also occasionally going to tell you a superstar move is, uh, it's going to tell you a bad move is a superstar move, right? And so... One of the things that we've built in Reagent, which we're using pretty heavily, is this sort of meta system that tries to, from your data, tell you what we think you should be building. So for example, let's say we build a just a supervised machine learning system. It takes the context and the action, and it tries to predict how the context will change. 
And let's say from that model we've built, we do um, feature importance and we find that none of the action features are important. So in other words, it doesn't matter what action you take, you always end up in this state, this state, this state. Now that might affect the reward, but it won't affect the next context. Then we can kind of tell you that you have a bandit. Like you might have a bandit problem or a, a one-step problem, a, a not a sequential problem, and not even know it. In fact, most of the people we work with don't. We can infer that from the data. Hmm. And so similarly, we could try to infer if our model is biased or not by training the model and then measuring it, comparing our model to what happens in the real world. So we call this um, like an offline value model. So basically, we'll train the model. We won't necessarily train a new policy, but we'll say, okay, you took this action. I think your context is going to change in this way. And then we can sort of shadow the web traffic coming in. And if the context is not changing the way we expect, then we know our model is is really biased. And so model-based RL might not work in this case. And so, yeah, I think you know, a big part of doing RL in the real world is kind of getting this tooling right. And that's that's something we spend a lot of time on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, we're just talking a little bit about areas where, well, the tooling that you built can help you identify where RL isn't going to work well. I was wondering about, are there specific, are there other types of constraints, you know, where either you don't see RL work well, or you don't see the kind of RL you're doing work well, you know, specifically when we're talking about, you know, specific types of objective functions or cost functions and any thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely. Um, so there's the question between the bandits and the reinforcement learning. So so for reinforcement learning, you know, the problem has to be sequential and it also has to be deceptive. So for example, let's imagine a maze, but a maze with no walls, right? So you don't need reinforcement learning in that case. You can just see the exit and just walk to it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so you know, a maze is a sequential problem, but that particular maze is just not deceptive. And so there are many people who have problems that are sequential but because they're not deceptive or the deception adds such little value, they can just use a contextual bandit. What's the kind of mathematical formulation or nomenclature around deception? Is that you know related to the you know amount of certainty in that you're in in any given state, or how do you characterize that? Yep, yep. So let's imagine you had a policy that looked at the what we call the one-step reward, the immediate reward. We could look at that policy and say, how does that policy compare to the optimal policy? So for example, let's say you're given kind of a reward based on how close you are to the exit. If the maze has no wall, like just Euclidean distance to the exit, mm-hmm. if your maze has no walls, then the step that gets you closest to the exit is also the best step to take, Right. But you know, imagine some really deceptive maze where going you actually need to go away from the exit to come back around. Otherwise, you get stuck in like a wall triangle or something, right? Mm-hmm. So in that case, you know, you're you're getting more and more reward, and then oh, I hit some wall that's near the exit, and I have to go all the way back. So that's a, that's the other end of the spectrum where the reinforcement learning is really important there to teach you to sort of ignore those short-term rewards because you need the big reward later. Mm-hmm. And so we can look at a pure reward policy or what we call a one-step policy and the multi-step policy, and we can kind of contrast them. And from that, we can have sort of an objective function that tells us the expected value of using reinforcement learning. Yeah. And so then there's this question of when should people do ML decision-making versus, you know, that that greater than 0.5 is pretty easy, Right. And yeah. so when should people use machine learning for something like that? And for that, you really have to draw out sort of the economics. Oh, go ahead. Clear. Are you saying when should people use machine learning to tune that 0.5 threshold or when should people? Yep. Okay. So, and specifically reinforcement learning, or now we comparing and contrasting some other kind of machine learning to tune that threshold versus reinforcement learning? Yeah, so that's a good question too. So let's start with the sort of broad decision-making. So that would include contextual bandits, reinforcement learning, Bayesian optimization, any type of thing where a machine is sort of learning that threshold over time or a threshold function, let's say, over time. Mm -hmm. 
it really depends. You have to kind of draw out sort of the kind of gain and the cost there. So for example, um, you know, imagine a, a decision-making system that decides when to open your garage door, like a smart garage door. Mm-hmm. That's probably not a good idea because you have just pressing a button, like the, the pressing the button on your car. And that's pretty easy to do. And it's extremely precise, right? So if you had a decision-making system to make a smart door, if even one time out of 100, it just opened your garage door in the middle of the day while you're at work and left it open all day, that probably wouldn't be worth it. Like that anxiety wouldn't be worth just pressing a button every day, right? So the economics just don't really work out, right? And so that's kind of what I look at when when teams come to us and say, you know, this is sort of the problem that we have. You will typically say, well, let's do a, you know, engineered solution. What's sort of the current way of making decisions? You know, what do we think the benefit can be of using you know, one of these technologies, right? And for many of these, the benefit might not be there, right? And then we get to, as you said, you know, when should we use these different technologies, right? You know, our team focuses on reinforcement learning, but we also support a variety of other ways of making decisions. And we have a a sister team called AE, Adaptive Experimentation, that we work with together that has um, some more ways that in their library that we don't have. And so there's there's two kind of approaches. In general, I would say, well, ostensibly, we have that tool that really helps out, right? But what the tool will do is, you know, if the problem... So there's a number of different factors. One factor is, is sample complexity or just sample cost. So let's say you're in a lab setting. Let's say you're trying to develop a vaccine for, for a virus. That's, I'm sure that was a lot of decision-making that happened in 2020. It might be really expensive to run one of these tests and try a virus out on a on some kind of host or something. And so in that case, every data point becomes really expensive to acquire and really important. And this actually goes beyond decision making to really any type of machine learning. You know, when creating a sample is really expensive, that's when you want to use these really efficient methods like Gaussian processes, linear regression, things that are simple make a lot of assumptions about the data and can really use every data point to its fullest, right? Um, When you have a lot of data, you know, in our case, some of our models have hundreds and hundreds of millions of rows of data. That's where, you know, deep learning can really shine. And so that's where, you know, the contextual bandits and the reinforcement learning can, can really extract all of the possible strategies and kind of package them up into one really large deep learning model. Hmm. You also mentioned earlier on you introduced one of the concepts of causality, you know, and talking about counterfactuals. Uh, Mm -hmm. Does causality and causal modeling play a big role in the way you approach problems? Yeah, definitely. That's a really big part of it. Um, Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, but you know, one of the important pieces is evaluation. So offline, before we deploy a model, we want to be confident that it's going to perform well. And so, you know, with supervised learning, it's relatively straightforward. You'd have a holdout set and you would see how it performs on that holdout set. But in this case, that concept doesn't translate. And so if you have a simulator, then it's relatively straightforward. You would just run your new policy in the simulator and just see what score it gets. And so that is one way to do it, is to build a simulator. So we, this gets back to the model-based approach, right? Build the simulator and see how you perform in, in the simulator. Of course, that induces all that bias we talked about, right? So there's an interesting question of if you don't have any model, can you still reason about how this model would perform? And the answer is maybe. So I'll I'll give you kind of a sort of extreme example, and I'll use it to kind of explain how it actually works. Let's say you have a system that gets a binary reward, one or zero. So you have a bunch of data from this system. So you have the context, the action that was taken, and whether it got the reward or not, right? Let's say you train a new policy, and I look at that same data set with the new policy. And let's say every time I got a reward, the new policy picks the same action as the old one. And every time I didn't get a reward, the new policy does something different. 
Well, that's a pretty good sign because it shows that if I was to have a time machine and go back in time, I'm guaranteed to get all those rewards I got last time. And maybe some of those actions were wrong, right? Some of those historical actions were wrong and I would have got even more reward. I mean, that second part, I don't know, but I at least could be guaranteed that I, I am doing at least as good as the old policy. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty extreme example, right? But there's sort of a, uh, a trick here, which we can use to kind of say something about a policy no matter what. And that trick is we inject what we call structured noise into the policy. So let's say, let's say I have a system that makes decisions. Let's say it's yes, no decisions. And nine times out of 10, I choose the system's decision. But the other 10% of the time, I do the opposite. So now I actually have my context in my, in my data set. I have my context. I have my action that was taken. I have the reward that I got. And I also have this extra number, which basically says, you know, did I go against the model or not? That extra number. Well, it turns out I can use that extra number to say something really useful about the new policy. And so we call this um, inverse propensity scoring. That's one method. There's actually a bunch of different methods, but that's one of them. And all of them revolve around this idea of the action that you take being a little bit fluid, being sort of a distribution over all the possible actions, and then using those probabilities, using that distribution to actually be able to say something intelligent about the new policy on every single data point, whether it wants to take the same action as the old one or not. And so using that, we can you know, have a statistical guarantee. It's... Um, Other than that sort of extreme example I gave, once you back away from that, you lose the 100% guarantee, Mm -hmm. but you could be, you know, 99% sure that this new policy is as good as the last one. Mm -hmm. And this is tying back to one of your earlier points about safety and ensuring that the model that you put, the next model that you put into production is guaranteed better than the previous model that you put into production. Exactly. And, And because you want that guarantee, the new model is not really able to, let's say, train to the end, right? If you think about supervised learning, you would train until your loss stops decreasing, right? But in this case, as you train, your model is going to what we call hallucinate, right? It's going to think about states that it's never seen before and then update its belief and update its policy based on those states. And it's going to continue to hallucinate in this way. Mm -hmm. And so what we can do is we can start by cloning the current policy called behavior cloning. So let's just, you know, can this new model do what the old model did? Once we get there, then let's start trying new things. But while we're trying new things, let's do this evaluation step. And once the evaluation step says, I'm not confident anymore that this policy is at least as good as the current one. You know, I, there's a 5% chance this policy is worse than the last one. At that point, that's when, you know, we'll hit the brakes and we'll say, okay, let's roll this model out. I mean, it would be a lot less than 5%, but you know, we'll, we'll, let's roll this model out. Let's collect data on it. And then let's repeat this tomorrow. And so what you end up with is really two separate loops. You have your training loop, but then you have this broader loop where you're collecting data, and then you're learning from the data, and you're collecting more data. And so it can often take these models many, many, many days. And we even have models which we launched over a year ago, and they're continuing to get better. Mm-hmm. It sounds like the guarantee that you're looking for is kind of a statistical aggregate of overall model performance, as opposed to this is reminding me of a conversation I had recently, you know, the kind of guarantee that you might want if you're building a rocket, like every single state is, you know, the outcome in any given state is going to be better than the outcome in any given state in the previous model. That's not the level of rigor you're going for here. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good point. Really good point. I think, you know, in our case, the state space is extremely large and it's it's very fluid. And so, I mean, there could be millions of, dimensions to the state space. And so a lot of the things we do are aggregate. I mean, I think we do, you know, we do look at the whole distribution 
So it doesn't always have to be that the mean is better. If there is sort of a heavy tail of bad situations, that will still kind of show up in our report. And um, you know, we might hold launching the model and learn something there. And there's yeah, also several different cross slices. When we do the evaluation, we'll do it on several different cross sections of data in parallel. But ostensibly, you're right that we can't really, you know, for any given state, Without a time machine, we can't be just 100% sure that this is going to be better than the, than the current one. But in aggregate, we can be very confident. And does that ever limit the scenarios that you put these kind of models into within the scope of your world? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I would say that we're focused on these you know, really large-scale kind of high-impact environments where we have a lot of data and where we want to move slow and steady. I think that you know a lot of the traditional reinforcement learning environments, so the games, I mean, it's stuff that I, I love doing in the PhD and I love following you know the active research in that area. But in a lot of those domains, I mean, we don't even bother to run reagent on that. Or if we do, it's just part of a test suite. Because um, if you're in a simulation where you have a lot more freedom and you don't need a lot of these safety controls, then you can learn much, much quicker. And there's techniques you could do that that aren't available to us. So I think I'm more curious about on the other end of the spectrum, which is areas where even all of the safety controls that you've put in are not good enough for a particular problem domain within the scope of a social network advertising marketing data center control. Or are you able to get enough confidence that you've been able to cover every domain that Safety was not an issue. They kept the model out of production in a given domain. I'm imagining that there are scenarios that could occur in a business like Facebook where the cost of a single bad decision is so monumental that you need a higher level of safety than the one you're describing. But I don't know if that's something that comes Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think um, it's a little challenge because a lot of our work is inbound. Right. So internally, there's a lot of teams who need this help. And so because of that, you know, teams that have those kind of problems just wouldn't really reach out to us. Right. But yeah, I see your point exactly. I think that if you if if um, this problem is so treacherous, I want to add some additional element of randomness to it. So let me go find reagent team. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I think the garage door is is kind of a good metaphor here, right? Yeah. Like yeah. the the automatic garage door that is just not worth it. It's not yeah. worth having your garage door open all day. It doesn't matter how many times it gets it right. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, in these environments, I mean, this is, you know, I have a this is my critique of just the entire IoT field is like turning on a light switch, pressing the button on the garage door. Like these things are so so easy that any type of intelligence has to be so accurate because because the cost is so tiny of pressing the button, right? And so, you know, if you look at, um, you know, we don't do a lot with, you know, a a lot of these integrity use cases, you know, that that have been really popular. You know, that's something where you really need a heavy touch. You need a human to really be in the loop there really closely and look at a lot of that content. Yeah, and so that's one where, yeah, a lot of those decisions, I think, you know, it's a good to just look at, in general, when you're building any type of ML system, it's good to look at what happens when there's a true positive, when there's a true negative, when there's a false positive, a false negative. And, and does it make sense to use machine learning here, right? Mm-hmm. So to your point, there's going to be a lot of cases where people are going to say, well, what's the value here just isn't justified. Yeah, yeah. We've talked really broadly about open source. Is Reagent currently available as open source? How far along are you down that path? Yeah, it's a good question. So Reagent's totally available open source. You can go to uh, www.reagent.ai and um, there's a link to GitHub and all of that. You can clone it. We have tutorials. Um, in 2021, we're going to really double down on this. I think that we've been really swamped with a lot of inbound work internally. And so we haven't given the open source this year the attention I think it deserved. You know, one thing that I'm really proud of is the the team has tripled in size this year. So, you know, the team is much larger and that gives us the freedom to 
to do something that we're all personally really passionate about. I mean, there's several people who said they joined the team because it was open source. I mean, that is their number one, probably number one, number two, number three reason for joining. And so, yeah, I think in 2021, we're going to really double down on the open source part of it. Um, it was completely functional. We have this really clever two-way sync where we have you know our internal infrastructure and then we have a lightweight, you know, open source infrastructure that we maintain and our core code sits on top of that. And the open source infrastructure, which is built on Petastorm, on Spark, on, uh, you know, PyTorch, that gets automatically synced to GitHub and all of our core code, um, you know, minus some experimental stuff that doesn't work yet, gets synced to GitHub as well automatically. So we've, we've set it up so that it's relatively lightweight. What we haven't done, I think, is really evangelize it. You know, write really compelling, build a really compelling website that draws people in. Um, you know, collect information, you know, ask, you know, do surveys. And so we know there's a variety of Fortune 500 companies using it. But the reason we know that is because um, when something goes wrong, we see an issue from, you know, so-and-so at Deloitte or something like that, right? Or so-and-so at Microsoft or something. So. So that's kind of how we've we've reverse engineered that. In general, people, you know, a lot of the folks using Reagent, there's sort of a long tail of, of hobbyists, but there's a few sort of Fortune 500 kind of big players using it. And just because it's, you know, it's difficult to kind of build an ecosystem there because it's kind of decision-making is kind of really close. People really kind of hold it close to the jacket, right? And so there's... Uh, I know that there's forks of reagent at different companies, and um, you know, over time, I think I think Hadoop actually went through something similar, if I remember my history. But over time, I think you know some of those will get folded back in. But for now, it's we're super fortunate to be able to give this to the whole world and anyone who wants to use it, and we've been able to sort of show a lot of impact internally to kind of. Uh, keep the lights on and pay the bills so that we can deliver that value. And quickly, do can you give me a sense for the, or us, the, a sense for the smallest project that you might want to apply this to or said another way, do you need to have a Facebook, you know, scale decision problem in order for you to, you know, explore this or are there toy problems or, small practical problems that you could apply this to to get a feel for it. So there is a, in the tutorial, we kind of walk people through with this fictitious e-commerce site. We kind of walk people through how to run Reagent, how to make decisions. And we show people, here's a contextual bandit. Here's reinforcement learning. Here's a fictitious example, which shows why you need reinforcement learning. And so, you know, on paper, we've taken all the necessary steps to you know, make this work at a small scale and all of that, right? But when you go a layer deeper, I would say it's it's not quite there. It's a real opportunity for someone to come in and, and have a really big impact. So for example, someone could integrate Reagent with Shopify, for example. So that's, you know, when I think about smaller mid-sized businesses and the kind of problems they have, you know, a lot of these folks aren't writing their own tech stack from top to bottom. And so they, if you gave them a PyTorch model, they wouldn't really know where to put it. And so I think that's where integrating with Shopify, you know, segment uh, for logging, you know, integrating with all of these open source and SaaS products is what would be necessary to make it, you know, really tenable, right? So I think that, you know, right now, if you're a small or medium-sized business, you're going to have to make a pretty big investment. But on the flip side, I think it's just a matter of time before people start building those integrations. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I, just looking at it realistically, I yeah, doubt I it's something we will do. I mean, we're all um, machine learning geeks and, and uh, yeah, I don't know if we're going to go that route, but I think it's just a matter of time before somebody builds it. Yeah, cool. Well, Jason, thanks so much for taking the time to share a bit about what you're up to. Very cool stuff. Uh, and looking forward to continuing to track Reagent. Cool. Thanks so much for having me. And if you want to follow um, Reagent, just check out reagent.ai or you can uh, follow me on Twitter, um, Neural Nets for Life. 
the number four. <laughs> but Neural Nets for Life on Twitter, you can follow and stay up to date that way. Nice. Awesome. Thanks, Jason. Cool. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.